Another edition of the Brisbane Football Review. It's James Scott and Adam coming to you from our own individual hubs at the moment as we still await the return of football here in Australia. But either way, we're uh, glad to be seeing each other, even if it is on our rel- res- respective computer screens. Adam, how are you? I'm good, James. How are you? How are you, Scott? I'm good, Adam. How are you? Yeah. All right. Like I said, uh, weather weather report. It's the rain is coming. Yeah. So, but. Either way, we're all indoors, and uh, it seems like we've still got a little while to go before we get back to live football. Uh, this is, of course, the Brisbane Football Review. Uh, we're uh, also on Football Nation Radio, and very pleased to be a uh, part of that. And you can get in contact with us, brisbanefootballreview at gmail.com. Uh, Facebook is The Raw Review. We're still working to change that name over to Brisbane Football Review. And uh, Twitter, at Football. And in the meantime, this is our first original show in five weeks, I believe, as we've got uh, some stuff to, as we're still waiting for things to happen. And this will also be our last podcast for, I'd say, about a month, possibly a little bit longer, as uh, we're going to take a little bit of a break before things start to get back. There's two uh, things we're going to cover today. So first of all, an update on where we're at when it comes to the return to football, because there has been some developments in the last 48 hours when it comes to rumoured uh, dates in terms of training and matches and whatnot. And then second of all, we've, got, we've been working on this on our social accounts for the last week and uh, we're very pleased to do the Pulse of the Fans Forum. So we've asked eight questions uh, online and uh, we've picked the best responses on some of the big issues going on in Australian football at the moment. So we've got a little bit of uh, NPL, a little bit of W League and a lot of A League because, well, let's be honest, the A League's where our bread and butter is uh, for this podcast. So Normally we run for an hour. This may go a little bit longer, but at the moment, I think a lot of people have a lot of time to kill. Right, Scott? Absolutely. There's plenty of time to kill at the moment, James. Not a lot going on, although we're gradually starting to return to life as we knew it, although very slowly. Yes. The key at the moment is just staying very, very patient. We're very slowly getting there, and the sooner the better. I def- I definitely think we're closer to the um, to the end and the beginning of this crisis. So there's a lot more hope than when we were last on... Um, doing this show live or recorded live anyway definitely hopefully when we come back for our next show in i think early july is when we've said that we'll be back with an original uh hopefully when that comes to be the case we'll be able to record in the same room again and we won't have the internet delay because of the lovely uh connections that we're dealing with in our own homes anyway (laughs) there there's the connection which there (laughs) <laughs> that's it so uh, yes very pleased to be having you with us for this very special show um, around about now we would normally be doing our season recap because I believe the A-League Grand Final was in fact meant to be this past weekend before everything was uh, on FIFA I think the Raw defeated Perth 4-1 to in Perth and the Glory complained that the game was at their home ground oh good did Sam like try <laughs> Penenka straight at the goalkeeper again Yes, actually, he did. Oh, great. <laughs> Can't believe I missed it. Yeah, it was it was a missed kick, hit the turf first. The ball actually just kept rolling and stopped before it reached the six-yard box, so Jamie Young just blasted it back over the halfway. 
I've thought about this way too much, haven't I? <laughs> yeah, well, it just sounds like Perth lost another grand final. And so did Popovich. It just proves we've all got a lot of time on our hands, James. Yes, exactly. I am very much missing actually getting to, you know, do this podcast properly on a regular basis, as well as my uh, other duties commentating for Football Queensland. I'm getting way too excited about my FIFA games at the moment and possibly just talking to myself as I'm playing them. So, before we get into this, uh, we want to do a quick plug as well. There are a lot of local businesses doing doing it tough at the moment, one of which, of course, we've, well, at least I've had quite a lot to do with, Ginger Sport. Uh, check them out online, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, they're running all sorts of uh, virtual uh, sessions as well, trying to fill the gap for junior football coaching. I spent the better part of five years working for them and honestly had the time of my life. So check out Ginger Sport and uh, we'll be looking forward to seeing when they get back on their feet as well. So we've got a lot to get to. So let's get into well, for lack of a better phrase, what we missed. So where things stand on the return to football, we're going to go straight to the Football Queensland release. They put a document out today uh, saying that people will be back in training as of June 12th. Uh, It'll be non-contact training with groups up to 20. And then uh, the season recommencement will be, according to Seven News Toowoomba, I think is where we first saw that story, Scott. Yeah, they put out a story talking to the Thunder on Monday, I think it was. It's due to come back the weekend of July the 24th with a full home and away season to be finished by October with finals in November. At least that's what the news report suggested. That hasn't been confirmed by Football Queensland at this stage, but that would be roughly the timetable you'd expect when you think about it, wouldn't it, James? Yes, definitely. And uh, the way that... um, I just had a quick look at the Facebook post from Football Queensland and found the... um... Uh, just quickly looking at the comments as well, which uh, it goes against my personal rule of never diving into comment sections. But, um, yeah, there... Football Queensland say they're working with zones, local councils, and other sports to finalise competition scenarios, and an announcement uh, will hopefully be made soon. So we're looking forward to finding out when we can get back to the NPL grounds, even if it is through the NPL.tv app, because, well, I think we're all missing football, even if it is starting to come back in places like Belarus and Germany. Yeah, and look, the interesting thing is that um, a few, it sounds like along the traps of, you know, on social media that sort of like clubs are already starting to unofficially uh, get a training by sort of, you know, using the sort of the technicality of the personal training rule and all that. So it's going to be very interesting. Obviously, June 12 looks like it's going to be the um, official kickoff. And there's obviously, if you read so closer into into sort of what's entailed in that and as well as uh, we actually received um, a message from a one of the clubs or my nameless for the time being um, basically yeah saying that you know that every every session needs attendance sheets as well as um, recording you know whether the actual players have downloaded the uh, COVID safe app so there's a lot um, a lot of protocols it's not it's well it's a step towards normality it seems to be a lot of protocols in place especially at this sort of stage to return to training point yeah, well, and that's one thing that we're seeing, though, with a lot of, uh, I think, cafes as well at the moment, where I went past a couple uh, the other day and they had, you know, sign-in sheets saying, you know, you got to leave your name, phone number and everything just so that, hmm. you know, if worst-case scenario happened, they've at least got some sort of record of who was there, which, look, I know it sucks, I know it's tedious, but at the moment, knowing what we do, isn't it better to just play it safe at the moment, but... That's just me. I think. Um, I think also as yeah, well so. as that you also got to you know, 
the sort of tenor of that message as well, sort of, you know, it was sort of almost sort of blaming Football Queensland in a way. Look, at the end of the day, Football Queensland are just following what the government are doing, whether it's, you know, it's in their bad judgment or not, or whether they, they want to do it. Obviously, this, this is uh, more the government, and it's not a negotiation. The government's telling this is what you need to do to, if you want to get back on the park, when you want to get back on the park. So I think at the end of the day, if, if people are a bit sort of you know, upset about things and whatnot, at the end of the day, this is not the government sort of negotiating. This is the, gov- the, the state government telling you this is what they need to do. And Football Queensland, Football Brisbane, all the zones, they need to be compliant. Yep. James, we either do this or we all go back to living in our bunkers until until a vaccine comes out. Because this is the way it's going to have to be for the next little while. Things like what you're referring to about lists and phone numbers at places, that's just the way it's going to have to be for the next little while. As frustrating as it might be and if clubs, football clubs have to do that as well, that's not that surprising. It seems like that might be a blanket kind of a rule across the board for most places that open up. Yeah, and that's just the way business is going to have to be done for the time being. And, you know, what it is also setting up as well, I do want to get onto this quickly, but in terms of when matches come back as well, I think we're going to be seeing a very, very hectic schedule for what is still a semi-professional, well, amateur to semi-professional competition, where these clubs are going to be playing a hectic schedule. So if the reported was a July 24th date does hold true and they're planning on having the season finished by the end of October, I think the NPL has 20 rounds to play over 15 weekends. So that means that you're getting at least five midweek rounds that have to be played over that time. And, you know, it, it is going to be a lot for these clubs. But I do feel like, you know, if they want to try and have as close to a fair season as possible they have to find a way to play this game because you don't want to have the grand final being played on, say, the second weekend of December when it's 35 degrees and the only team that... And the team that winds up winning it is the one that can, you know, still be the healthiest and fittest solely because they're the ones that are able to handle the conditions. Absolutely, Jeff. And that's probably why we've seen the reports today come out that the FFA Cup is likely to be shelled for the 2020 year because if they are, it's going to be at least five midweek games. There may be more if wet weather decides to rear its ugly head once again, as we saw at the start of the season, if that could, it, instead of being five, it might be six or seven if if you get bad breaks in the weather in a given state. So that's probably why the FFA Cup has been shelved this year, which is unfortunate. I will say also, just I know we're going to wait the other minute, but I'm, I'm surprised it's the only code in Australia that hasn't said anything at all about when they might be resuming to training when they might be playing games because it's been very, very quiet. I think there's a lot of people who are becoming a bit frustrated by the lack of clarity what's happening at that level at the moment. Look, I think if like so I, if I was a betting man, and I am, um, I almost ga- gather that you know, there's a... Um, yeah, responsibly as well, apparently. Um, that I would actually think that there's more of a likelihood that this, um, this A-League season might get called off. You know, Crown Sydney, the... Uh, the uh, champions, the and um, yeah, that's that's all she wrote. I think, I think um, for the other codes, for, especially for NRL and AFL, they still got you know 90% of the season to go, so they have to sort of rush it through. I don't think the FFA are, are in any real rush. I, mean, I think in the back of the mind, the the option of you know just you know cancelling the cancelling the remainder between the 1920 season, I still think is a firm one. Yeah, I really hope that isn't the case. I want to see. Yeah, no, the way... I agree. I want to see the way these teams actually find a way to finish the season off. And it would feel really hollow. Like, I, you know, if Brisbane were in the position of Sydney, it would feel really hollow finding out that 
okay, well, we don't get to play the final series. We don't get to be crowned champions. We don't get to see that grand final. You don't get Asia either, really, if you finish first in the Premier's plate either, because it's probably not going to be a Champions League in the next 12 months either. So it would be really hollow to just be awarded. Here's your trophy, and that's it. It would be. I I think they will finish these games whenever, however, but it's going to be interesting to see how they do it. I will say, though, when it comes to you know, bragging rights and whatnot, I'm still counting that. I still would count that as four titles for Brisbane were I in that position. So, look, I'm not about being petty. That's just the way I am. Self-interest, Jack. uh, I'm all about putting asterisks on titles handed out to teams this calendar year. (laughs) There's one club in particular that will have a big fat asterisk next to its name. Yep. Kansas City Chiefs? No, that's pretty Ah, That's fine. I know, I just wanted to take that shot. Anyway... Uh, we'll keep moving, though, and talk about the A-League as well, because we've kind of already uh, gotten there. But the rumours at the moment, and we do want to emphasise the rumours, are that right now the plan is to have the season start back August 1st, have players back in training by the start of July, season start August 1st, and end by the end of August. Now, I feel like we could do a whole episode on this. I don't want to, because I feel like we do 10 minutes of original talk and 50 minutes talking in circles. But all I will say is... I don't mind that they're playing it safe, but I don't. I do have an issue with them playing it this safe and not trying to say anything. Now, look, I think the NRL went overly aggressive, and you know, good on Peter Volandis for the way that he actually managed that, saying, "Hey, we're coming back this date unless you tell us otherwise." However, you know, I would have happily had the A League say, "All right, we're coming back the weekend of June fourth, fifth, which, after today's announcement on the Gold Coast Marathon, is suddenly a lot more free for me." Uh, I do feel like that. They need to, like, they could very easily said, all right, let's just get back. You know, this is the way that it's going to be played out, and that's that. Scott? Yeah, I, I definitely think they need to have said something by now because we haven't really heard publicly from James Johnson in terms of stuff like this for a while. They had their announcement back in, was it late April, early May, when they had their most recent announcement? When we did, basically, yeah, so you know, the, when we did the last the show, basically, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, so that's basically the last time we've heard from the FFA on this issue. It's been another month since then, and there's rumours leaking out through the press that may or may not be accurate, but I think I think it's time for someone at the FFA to stand up that this is what we're planning on doing, provided it's safe, and then we'll give more details about the the where the games will be played in that at a later date. But I think we need to find out when A-League teams are due to return to training. I think I think that we should have an answer to that by now, and I think Clubs are probably get, getting frustrated on that as well because, because obviously we have visa players in the A-League who are all around the world. We've seen, obviously, Robbie Fowler's gone back to the UK with his family, I think. From Wellington, also, De Beer went back to Mexico when his wife gave birth. So there's a lot of players all around the world who were waiting to find out when they have to travel back to this part of the world to resume the season. And I think everyone's waiting for that announcement. And it's probably time we have something from the FFA on that. And on that as well, we are starting to see those reports of discontent starting to come through. I think SBS and Fox have both had stories. Uh, I think Fox had a quote from Bruce Jitte just saying, give us something to work off, even if it turns out to not be the case. And I think, you know, the frustration is understandable. I still feel like overall they're waiting for guidance from FIFA because obviously there is that issue with the contracts which are running out in, what, two weeks from today pretty much. Oh, no, two, or whatever. The contracts are running out uh, we're meant to run out May 31st, but I think they're waiting for guidance to say, all right, all leagues have until this date to finish their season, which I think is going to be the end of August. 
So I think they may as well figure, let's use all of that time, but until we get a firm date from FIFA, let's not go crazy, which... Just just give us something. I think that's all we really want is just a date to look forward to. And I feel like, at least from fans, having that thing to look forward to, even if it's two months away, it's something. That's all we really want is just something like that. I think as well. Um, and like I said, we, we give the comparisons to the NRL and the AFL as far as you know the, the way they were able to do it. Look, we've got to remember, football is a very, very different situation. Like I said, again, like I said, the, the most telling point is that, you know, the season was, you know, at near the end rather than near the beginning. But also as well, you got, you know, contract expiring, you know, in the meantime. So half these players may not even technically and by the law be in a job, you know, in a couple of weeks' time. Um, and also as well, you have the, you're right, you also have the implications as far as FIFA, so the governing body, whereas, you know, here in, even Australia, the NRL and the AFL practically, they're they're their only. They make up their own rules. So I think, um, and I think the last point as well as far as why you know, the A-League is different to NRL and AFL is that it is truly a national competition where, you know, as far as uh, you know, NRL goes, they were prepared to at one point basically be in a hub in Sydney. Um, whereas, you know, AFL, I think it's sort of the same. They've got their own hubs. So I just don't think there's any consensus as far as these these owners and these clubs about where they're actually going to play. Now, I think there must be a bit of, there might even be a bit of backlash to say, oh, let's just complete the season in Sydney. I don't think it washes for some of them. That could very well be the case, Scott. Yeah, I definitely think that's the case. I think they've got to work that out. I think Sydney's probably, if it's going to be in a hub, that's where it'd be. But I want to go back to Adam's point about the contracts. Not only are they up, in a week and a half or whatever it is, some players have committed to joining other clubs already. Because don't forget, MacArthur have been pretty active in terms of adding players to their roster, which because they're, they're still planning to join the competition when the new season begins, whenever that starts. So players may have new contracts at other clubs which kick off on July on June the 1st. Do those players all of a sudden not not start those contracts on June the 1st? Do, they, do the previous ones still... To carry through to August, it's such a grey area. They have to work that out as well. That might be also something they have to work out. But that's such that's a big grey area as well because there. That's not kidding ourselves. There are players who sign for other clubs. It's just the way the way the game works here in Australia with free transfers. Tommy Orr has won. It's the one that stands out the most. Yeah, exactly. And I I do feel like if there's going to be some blanket uh, rule coming through on that though because I again this is just off the top of my head but I feel like in Europe I've already read about certain players that have been like or certain leagues that have had their contract deadlines extended and you know if there are new deals starting on that were meant to start on the 1st of June the 1st of July or whatever those don't start until the day after the previous league year ends anyway that's where we're at at the moment so it's a whole lot of waiting for the time being so what do you say we get into the pulse of the fan survey that we've been running online because I've got some really good answers here that I want to talk about and some really good questions that we came up with as well, if I'm going to toot our own horn. <laughs> we probably should go into it after the effort we've put into asking people to give response. That's it. Yeah. All right, and bef- and before we do that, um, yeah, just another quick plug for Ginger Sport, fun soccer. Check out, yeah, Ginger Sport On Demand as well, which I believe has been launched as a result of this at the moment. So check out that. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, online, the website, Ginger Sport au. Anyway, on to the first question. And one of the conspiracy theories that we've sort of discussed between us is whether or not the A-League is actually setting up to move to a winter calendar to line up with the state leagues. And that was the first question that we actually asked for uh, our quest- uh, for our 
Pulse of the Fan Survey. I've really got to write that down and remember what it was actually called. Um, and yeah, we had some... Uh, yeah, so the question we asked was, should the A-League move to a winter calendar to line up with the state leagues or stick with their current October to May setup? So uh, first answer I'm going to go to is John Lang on Facebook, who gave us a couple of really good answers on these questions as well. So, and John is, I think, in the same position as a lot of us. He's in two minds. If we stay in summer, we don't run up against other codes uh, like the NRL and AFL, but both of those are sl- creeping uh, further into the season, starting preseason games in February, but going up against them in winter could cause a problem with stadiums. But if we got our own stadiums, this would no longer be a problem. We're not going to talk about getting a new stadium in this podcast. Adam, I'm warning you. <laughs> I, got a, I, got a free, I got a free show yellow for that. <laughs> yep. Uh, and the second thought that from John there, move to winter, best possibility of better football, but as in one, stadium availability could be a problem. Other codes will do no favours. Even the international competition like the World Cup, AFL cracked up. The, this is the best point I agree on. The summer heat does suck the life out of good football. You know, it can be played at night from 6 o'clock Queensland time onward. Summer is John's pick. Uh, nothing better than playing football in a balmy Queensland evening. But if Fox uh, does scrap the broadcast deal, then times could be a lot more flexible. Summer should not see the problems with conflicting against local leagues and kids' competitions as most of them are played in winter. Uh, Scott McCormick, who's been on the podcast filling in for Adam, love to see it move to winter when it's viable, uh, but it's probably the best chance for them to do it now, seeing as the league is finishing a bit later. Uh, Stephen says keep it in summer or move to winter, but with stadiums dedicated to football first. I'm starting to sense the theme to these ad, uh, answers. Yep. Uh, over on Twitter, Liam from Queensland Socceroos fans, at Parslow77, winter for sure. Still won't stop me going to F- NPL and FQPL games. Home and away games plus A-League scheduling means football almost every weekend over winter. Uh, Neil Johnson, A-League should move to winter uh, to line up with the Asian Football Confederation. Um, one reason for moving to some was to line up with Europe so players were available for the Socceroos. Graham Fletcher, at Wests underscore glory. Uh, I believe we need to move to the cooler months and uh, the standard of football improve. We also had four more saying yes and one more saying no, but with no elaboration. So I'm not going to mention who said that because if you didn't care to elaborate on it, you don't deserve to get your name read out. Plain and simple. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so, uh, and we also had Ginger Sport as well, at Ginger underscore Sport. Winter would align better with the rest of the world, and most importantly, uh, AFC, but be competing for exposure in a much noisier market with NRL and AFL for the sponsorship dollar, uh, commercial exposure, and even network news coverage. Okay, so, all those responses, it seems like now there's been a real shift in attitude from, I would say even three years ago when it came to uh, people saying, no, 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 we want that clean air over summer, which... To be honest, clean air doesn't really exist anymore, does it, Adam? No, it doesn't. And um, this is the thing is, I think also the attitude shift has changed around the same time as Fox Sports' attitude to the A-League has changed. Because I think there's actually a real belief now that whereas three years ago you would have said, no chance in hell, the A-League will die if you even think contemplate going to winter. I think now with what has gone on in the world with the pandemic and whatnot, um, and given that everyone is almost on an equal footing as far as, you know, every code has stopped, that the opportunity to perhaps, you know, set the agenda for football for the next, you know, decade or so could actually be right here, right now. And a move to winter doesn't seem like such a bad idea. It will be risky, of course, um, and it would take a lot of, you know, 
it, it'll take a lot of risks, you know, and you know, stuff like stadium availability is something that's going to be a major part uh, of it. But look, it, I think Yachu certainly has shifted, whereas in the past it was a case of no, no chance, you're just going to, you're basically committing, you know, the ten was ten amount of suicide in a sporting sense. I will say, Adam, I think the phrase you were looking for is it would take a lot of chutzpah to move to winter. I will say, I definitely think Adam's right about the attitude has changed, and I know my attitude has changed. I definitely think now, when we look at this decision, it's really where do we want to position ourselves in terms of the sporting market. And I think aligning with Asia is key for the way we want to we want to progress. I think if that, and I think that's definitely something we have to worry about. We also, as a game, we're talking more about promotion and relegation, and not being a pipe dream, but something which we want to achieve in the future. And, to me, the only way we're going to be able to do that is to move the A-League to the winter months. And yes, that means taking on the winter football codes who have that traditionally, who have traditionally dominated that period. But I think we need to stop worrying about those codes and just do what we do and do what we do well. And I think that's definitely the way we need to go. I think it would improve the quality of football as well. No question about that. I think there's no doubt when you're playing in cooler conditions as they will be playing in now compared to 35-plus degree days in summer, I think that would definitely improve the quality, but to me, it's about positioning ourselves for where we want to be in 10 years' time, which is a football pyramid which is somewhat more open than it is now with promotion and relegation, and the only way you're going to be able to do that is in the winter, because I cannot see any way you could uproot all the grassroots clubs and the NPL clubs and everybody else and move them into summer. I don't see how that's feasible or viable at all, so to me, it would have to be moving the A-League to winter. Yeah, at risk, at risk of sound like a broken record. Um, look, that's exactly what I was saying before. Is that either way, it has to alignment is the key. Is that like I said, all grassroots, the connection to the professional game, it needs to happen. There's no point, you know, doing doing it half-assed. Yeah, you know, it's got to be one or the other. I I agree. Like I was probably I feel like I was the last one of the three of us to really come around to the idea of moving to winter, but. I'm on board with that as well. And as was pointed out by a couple of the uh, people in our comments, that does line us up better with the Asian Champions League as well, and just Asia in general. And, you know, you do still hear the rumblings about, you know, some certain nations over there feeling like Australia isn't a proper part of Asia. And, you know, a European wannabe playing in Asia. And uh, the one point as well that uh, Neil brought up is uh, making players available for the Socceroos. Well, the silver lining to work around that now is the fact that we've got international dates. So that's less of an issue for us now. And the thing the thing that I keep coming back to is it's a winter sport, but as you said, Scott, it's time for football to try and stand on its own two feet. And my big thing as well on this when it comes to scheduling is, yes, okay, one of the big issues the A-League had when they started in August was that it would always clash with NPL finals. I remember there was a game, I think against Wellington or something, that saw... Tommy all got sent off, but it only had about 8,000 people because it was being played at 2 o'clock on a Saturday afternoon where most clubs were either getting ready for or playing in uh, state competition finals. So I feel like the workaround there is get the A-League to work with the local federations and say, all right, so Brisbane has a home game, 7.30 Saturday night, you know, July 20th or whatever. All NPL games that day, uh, the seniors are playing at 4pm 4, 4 so that or 4 or 4.30, so that, like we saw during the World Cup, everything is finished and everyone who wants to go to the Raw can. 
Now, obviously, if you're playing in Mackay, that's a different story, but you can watch it at, a, at the uh, sports club up there or something. But I feel like that's probably the best way to do it. And the only other question I've got there is, how is the broadcasting going to work? And I feel like the only way that it will is if you wind up with a deal where you've got a primetime game, maybe two on a free-to-air network every week, and a network that is actually going to promote it, give it a reason to succeed. And you're probably also going to have to put it on a streaming network like Optus Sport, solely because I just don't see Foxtel having the resources to have the A-League in, on a Saturday night in winter when they've got multiple AFL, multiple NRL, and you know probably a golf tournament as well. I but also, like but also, what just on your point about that? Um, yeah, I think I think that's probably the, the, the uh, blueprint going forward. As far as you know, you have one feature game, and then the rest the rest of the games you can have. You know, for example, for the, in the A League, you could have you know four games on simultaneously at you know at say six o'clock on a Saturday night. You know, you have your one feature game on free to wear, and the rest on Optus. Because let's face it, you know these days the whole tagline of Fox Sports over the years was every game exclusively live. So you're trying to again, you need five separate time slots. You know, in this world of you know of streaming on demand and whatnot, do you actually really need to have five unique time slots every week? You know, just to, just to just to fill out the um the sort of the, fill out the viewership. Scott, there you go, James. Okay, on that as well. <laughs> keep in mind, with further expansion in the A League there's going to be a need for more than five time slots. And you might find that you have two, t- two matches being played at once, but one's on Optus Sport, one's on Channel 10. Yep. Or, you know, if you have three or four games being played at once, say 7.30 on a Saturday night, which I know is too late for families and people that drive Volvos. But I do feel like that's got... Like, you can have almost like an NFL Red Zone sort of setup there yeah. on Channel 10, where, you know, you have pick a Channel 10 sports personality, they're sitting there saying, all right, we're going to go to Adelaide now where there's a free kick uh, being set up for, I was about to say Craig Goodwin, but he's not there anymore. And then, you know, watch that, watch a couple <laughs> minutes of that game. Let's go de- Let's go over to Melbourne for the Victory uh, City derby. And you can wind up working that, like you can work around that as well and get a lot more creative. Don't the Premier League do that as well in the midnight window? I don't watch Optus Sport on Premier League much anymore, but I remember when I was watching it a couple of years ago, they did have a midnight game where it was the main feature game and they cut away quite often if there was a chance or a goal or something. So you could do that. But also, I just think you're both right about the... Do we really need five different windows over a weekend to play the games in? Because if it is on a streaming platform... Everyone can watch the game they want to watch live anyway. So every game is still live. And if it's on only one platform, it's exclusive on that, whatever that is. But it's still all live all the way out of the time. I don't think the, the Fox Terminal, I beg your pardon, of one game on a Friday or two on a Friday potentially, two on a Saturday and one on a Sunday. I don't think you necessarily need to do that. And that, if, that, if that idea did go, then a lot of the unfavorable time slot windows that A-League clubs despise you could get rid of. And teams could shed. We would like to play our home games at this time because that's when we get our best crowds. And then I think that would make it a lot better as well. Absolutely. I know I know my own personal viewing habits have changed over the years with the A-League where once upon a time I'd watch every game. Nowadays, I, I'm flat out, unless I'm, I'm bored or it's actually a game I want to see... I don't want to. Like I said, I really don't want to care too much about watching Central Coast and Newcastle, for example. 
And that and you know at, and having that, if it's at the same time as say a Brisbane Raw game, hey, I'm I'm cool with that. And I think the majority of fans across the league at the moment are happy just watching their side or one of these big marquee games over um over watching every single game is what Foxtel seems to be marketing and has for for a number of years. In fact, over the last fifteen years. I don't think that's right, Adam. I also do remember a couple of years ago, this actually did happen because of the Champions League with the Roar and the Marins. They did play games at the same time. I do remember that. In the second last year, Brisbane were playing in Newcastle from memory and the Marins were playing someone and they cut between the two games. Adelaide, it was Adelaide. They had both games on two separate channels, but if something happened in the other game, they would cut in and show it to you. Hmm. So I think you're right. I don't see why you can't have games on at the same time. To me, it's an, that's an antiquated, old, out-of-date system, and it's probably something we could move on from. And we need to I move agree. on because the host is getting pissed off. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, but I will say on that as well, I feel like one of the biggest problems with the A-League as well is the fact that a lot of people now are still happy to watch their team, but they don't have a reason to want to watch other matches. Mm. And as you guys were saying, like you're not interested in watching you know, Adelaide-Perth when you could be out doing something else on a lovely, you know, Sunday afternoon. And look, I get it. You know, priorities change. You get older. You've got other stuff going on. But you could, like, say, you know, Brisbane are playing Newcastle and it's 3-0 with half an hour to go. But at the same time, you've got a really good game between, say, Sydney and Wellington. You're not, you're, you might say, hey, I've got this on my you know, tablet. I'm going to switch it over and just catch the end of the roar. I know I do that with the NFL as well. Like, if there's a game I'm really interested in watching, I'll watch it. But then if a better game comes up, I'll flick it over. Okay. Yeah, that's true I in all question. sports, by the way, not just in football. People only want to watch their own team, not generic games. That's, a, that's yeah, an issue exactly. across all sports. It also exactly. might explain why anyway. the, the ratings have gone down the toilet basically in the last few years. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, there's a lot that you know we could cover on this as well. Um, I honestly could probably do a whole hour on broadcasting, but instead we're going to move on to question two. And the question was, what changes need to be made to the Y League setup to provide better opportunities for young players? The unpublished part of that question I had was because uh, whether it was, you know, what changes need to be made to the Y League because the current setup is a joke. <laughs> uh, because let's be honest, what are eight games... Home and away against half the competition doesn't get the job done. I know these guys play NPL and everything as well, but it's not enough. You see it when a lot of these guys come into the A-League squad as well from the uh, Y-League setup. They're just not up to speed. And I feel like the overarching theme in our comments, so I'm going to read through them now. Facebook, John Lang again. Complete season, not just a short season. Full-blown with equal home and away series and possibly a couple more teams. Uh, Every A-League club should have a team much like they should with the W League. That's my little non-sequitur, not John's. Um, and they should be aligned to the uh, competition so that teams could possibly travel together, even if they don't play at the same venue. Now, I want to quickly expand on this as well from uh, John's point and say, yes, I agree. Pretty much wholeheartedly with that. Send the Y League sides around uh, with the A-League teams. I know that does you know, make for ex- uh, extra travel costs, but... I'm sure, I'm sure there'll be a way to make it work in the budget, especially if, you know, you get a new streaming uh, broadcaster that happens to be willing to broadcast Y-League matches. But uh, this year they expanded on the benches for A-League sides where if you put a certain number of youth players on the bench, you could have up to seven players. But what we're seeing across the league is not every team is travelling a full bench because they don't want to send the two young players yep. just to sit there. So... Yep. 
if you've got, say, the Y-League side playing in the same city at 10.30 for a 5pm game or whatever, why not say, hey, we've got these three guys, they're going to play 45 minutes in the Y-League, get to the stadium and expand it over there. Okay, over the Twitter, uh, Scott McCormick, at Scott McCormick 3, a full reserve season to run alongside the A-League as an under-21 or under-23 comp. And Connor... uh, Connor AR97 says Australia can't support under 23s league should be breaking into the first team at that age An under 21 comp would be the best way to do a uh, reserve league um, Brandon had a three tweet story full season running in concert with the A league and uh, any national second leave second division uh, and Graham Fletcher says uh, an FFA cup for women's clubs too but that'll lead into question three so Adam yes. do you disagree with any of that I don't um, I've been, as you know, I've been a long advocate, and I'm pretty sure I've said it numerous times on this show that the that they should the reserves league should be running in concert um, on the same roster as that, um, and basically you have expanded squads, and it looks like that you know I'm glad to see glad to see that you know a lot of the like-minded football fans agree because I think one thing we can all agree with is that the current structure. Is no, I, I, I challenge you to find a person that actually likes this uh, this wild league setup at the moment. I think we all think, and you know, I think that's probably one of the few things that we all, as football fans in this country, agree on is that the wild league is manifestly insufficient for our development. It's probably what's hurting it. So I think have a um, if you have a you know a competition that runs basically a reserves competition. You know, and it runs basically parallel to to the rest of the season. I think you can get a lot of answers there. Uh, look, firstly, the Wire League is the current model is rubbish, but I don't agree with Adam of calling it a reserves league because I think that it would only cultivate the idea of clubs stockpiling players in that in that the sort of players which should be playing first team football at MPL clubs and would be the basis of second division clubs. So I don't agree with calling it a reserves league as such, but I would I would still have an age limit on it because you want to make sure that players if they if you're at 22, 23, 24. Should you be playing reserves league football for a top division team or playing first team regular minutes for a second division team? I think it's pretty clear you should be playing in a second division team where, where possible to get proper minutes. But I think so. I would keep the age limit, but I, I, it's not be, it's it's not in question that this league needs to be expanded and needs to be more competitive. And I think the way you do that in the short term is you you, you get Western United and Macarthur to enter the league immediately. It needs more teams in at the Wiley at the moment. They only play eight games at the moment, which is it's just nowhere near enough for a for a, a fully fledged youth team youth league, which is meant to bring through players into the professional game. It's just nowhere near enough. So you've got to bring in at least two new teams. And I would also say you look at the model of Canberra United in that competition, where they're an under twenty one team of players playing in the ACT MPL. I think you could do the same with a team down in Tasmania, for example, and bring them into it. So you're giving players in Tasmania who are overlooked at the youth level and bring them in as a group, of, as a group, add them into the youth league, and also talk to Wellington because they've got a reserves team in their New Zealand premiership. They may be interested in entering the wide league to align themselves with this, with their A-league. So particularly if it does start lining up where you've where you have a youth team in the A-League playing in the same city on the same weekend, that could be tremendously beneficial. So I would, I would definitely look to expand the competition. Full home and away season, I think you could do it. 
But you could also do something where you have, you still have a two conference system, but if you've got six or seven teams in a conference, you play everyone in your conference twice, and you play the other conference once. And that still brings you to about 18 games, which is the longest youth league season we've ever had in a full home and away season. That The last full home and away season was 18 rounds. So I think if, you, if you're around 18 games, I think that is a sufficient youth league competition. But at the moment, it's just an absolute joke, isn't it? It's just, for the success stories it produces, like we're talking about in Brisbane and Maratovic, there's a lot of players who get one game, one or two games, and then they get spat out back to the NPL level and you don't see or hear from them again. It's just something definitely needs to change at that level. There's no doubt about it. And on that as well, I, I feel like the, with the idea of a reserves league, you can call it a reserves league if you want, but you may just have to find a way to limit the number of, you know, well, in footballing terms, middle-aged guys running around because they're not quite a day league standard, but they're good depth. So maybe you set it up so that you can have, you know, unlimited players uh, playing before their 23rd birthday or the season that they turn 23 and you can have five guys up to five guys because my other thought on that as well is it does give players who are coming back from long-term injuries I think of a guy like Corey Gramero who you know had shocking luck with injuries he might have benefited from you know a few games of a maybe lesser standard and then you know, something to get him back into the A-League setup. So you give these players a chance to, you know, keep match fit so that when their time does come in the A-League, they're getting called on. So, you know, you limit it three, four, five. That's just the way I'd... Well, just just to that. expand on what I was saying about the Reserves League, and, and, I, and I'm pretty sure I have explained this before, is that, first, first of all, I think that calling 23-year-olds a youth, I think that's, that's the first mistake. It shouldn't be... I actually think there should actually be a under-18s league. You know, that there's, there's for the academies, and that should be played in itself. So, that, that, that's, you know, as far as, you know, you know as far as the, you know, the youth side of things, the, the academies should be having a competition amongst themselves, having a league amongst themselves. Beyond that, as far as the, quote, reserves league goes, I think you can, you can afford to get away with having a quota. In other words, you're only allowed to have, say, four overage players, and the rest is that your 18s to 23s. So, for example, um, just as an arbitrary number. Um, yeah, other than that, I think as well with with sort of trying to complement that with the national second division, the NSL, as you like to call it, national um, second league. That basically, that you know, we shouldn't. They, those clubs need to be. They can't just rely on A League loanees who are fringe players to be to be bulking up. Because what's the point of having a league if it's if you have this competition, you have the reserves where you have that structure. Uh, going back to sort of a national second league, you know, having a bunch of uh, loanees of fringe players down there, does that really um, satisfy the purpose of having a national second league? So I think there's a few sort of machinations at play, but. Um, but yeah, look, I think that at the end of the day, Reserves League, you need to have that, but you could also have a Youth League because I think that's for under-18s and below. Scott, last thought. No, I, I, would, I would keep... If you're going to have a, a Youth League, I'd have it at under-21 level at most. Once you're over the age of 21, you should be playing mm. senior senior football. And Adam, I wasn't yeah. referring to players going to second division clubs on a loan. I was saying, as you see all around the world, when players don't quite make it at the highest level... They get released and then join another club at a lower level. Oh no, no, I know. And what that you, sort of I know thing. What so that's, that's what I'm saying. I'd yeah. like to see happen. 
Yeah. So I think we're kind of on the same page. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's nice. nice. But I do, I do kind of feel like, yeah, just give these guys some sort of safety net and a chance to make it all work. Okay. Question three. Uh, this is a W League focus one. With more elite players heading to Europe, what should the W League do to continue to entice good players to our league? Or should it start to focus more on developing talented youngsters to provide a pathway to the uh, US and Europe? Now, obviously we're seeing you know a lot of English clubs and um, continental European clubs suddenly deciding to really go all out for women's football. Sam Kerr signed for Chelsea. Caitlin Ford, coincidentally my new favourite player, has just signed for Arsenal. And a bunch of other players have got... Uh, Hayley Razzo signed for Everton, Adam's new favourite player. So she's my favourite player. And, yeah, we're seeing these players actually going overseas now, so I feel like there's a lot to really... Like, the W League is finding itself in a real transition phase because, look, I know we all want it to do well, we want the Matildas to do well, but the sad fact of the matter is I don't feel like there are the resources to make it compete with a lot of these big European nations. So it's got to find its middle ground between trying to be as close to a top level league as it can while still, you know, providing good pathways. So uh, from Facebook, Brent Cameron says, first be serious about it. The national women's uh, competition, we can't even supply a proper season length, let alone balanced home and away rounds. Uh, Rob Grant in the responses, girls seem to be swept to one side, prove they can mix it with the best. The W league, like the A league doesn't tick many boxes. The one thing people forget is not all players can play in the U in Europe, UK, or USA, unless they're internationals. Uh, Scott McCormick, we're very glad that you uh, commented on all these, Scott. Please keep the feedback coming. Uh, Develop young Matildas and getting them ready for the Matildas and playing in Europe or the USA. Uh, Ross says, is there such a thing as transfer fees so our clubs can at least make some coin? Now, we can answer that now, actually, and say I'm fairly certain there is. Yes. Because I believe the Raw got one for Hayley Rasso. I believe. Yep. There we go. Uh... Neil Johnson uh, on Twitter. W League will continue to entice good players, uh, though maybe not so many top-line players with the growth growth of the game in Europe. Probably be giving more talented youngsters an opportunity. W League will continue to entice good players, though. Yeah, I just realised I copied that uh, answer down twice. Good job, James. Uh, Brandon says, uh, move to winter to remove the daunting prospect of playing in unhealthy temperatures, thus putting you in direct competition with the USA. Uh, develop with uh, develop youth players, partner with European and US clubs and align slash partner with South America. Now, my thoughts on that are simply the W League needs to stay aligned with whatever the A-League does because, let's be honest, it's part of the football calendar as well and I feel like it works well in concert with the A-League, whether it's, you know, having a Friday night, Saturday doubleheader W League A-League or a Sunday afternoon doubleheader whether it's in summer, winter, autumn, spring, or whatever. But look, my point on this is, I feel like the W League still needs to go and try and entice as many good players as they can. We saw what that can do for the Wanderers this year, but my counter is, I feel like we're not going to be seeing a lot of those top flight players like a Chi Abogugu, who was with the Raw, uh, uh, Nagasato, who was with the Raw Nagasato, as well. Nagasato, yep. I feel like those sorts of players, you know, we might not see too many of them. But you look at someone like a Riley Baston, who, you know, came and lit up MPLW. Now she's off... Now, like, she's back in the US now, but I, she's one of those players that I want to see more of in the W League. And I feel like she could come back, have another couple of good seasons there, and turn that into a solid career in the US. So, for me, it's simply just, yeah, keep trying to get as 
many strong plays as you can and maybe say, okay, where you might have had a Hayley Rasso, let's see who the next Hayley Rasso can be coming through our youth system. Yeah, I think the first point you make, James, about keeping the W League aligned with the rest of the professional game is absolutely correct. If we would, hypothetically, we're going to move the A League to winter to align with to with the community MPL grassroots level, you'd have to keep the W League in alignment with that as well. So I certainly agree with that. And to answer the actual question, I think I don't think you can produce the best developed talent to the best level you can if you're not bringing in the best talent that you can as well. I accept the fact that if that with the rise of women's football in Europe in particular, rivaling America, there's a lot more options for, for players to go and play, which is a great thing, which makes it more difficult to attract quality players. But if you did just go back to a, um, a bottom half of the A-League, W-League Ross, beg your pardon, plus MPL players, I don't think that would really produce the level of players that we would require to, to underpin the national team to the level it currently does. So I think... We would, def- I think, you'd definitely need to find a way to attract some decent players into the competition, and I still think you could do that. I think there's still some players out there you could get because there's also potential bringing in players on a loan move. We've seen teams bring players in on loan from Europe in the W League already, so I certainly think you could do that potentially. So I definitely think they have to keep it as strong as they can. We've got to accept the fact that our best players, like in the men's game, will not be playing in Australia which means that when they come back to Australia to play in the national team shirt, it's more special because you don't get to see them every week running around in the W League. You only see them three or four times a year, potentially, when they're running around for the nation. So I think we have to accept the fact that the best players won't be here, but we should. it's got to be as strong as it possibly can to produce the next generation. Otherwise, it could fall away, and that would be a real shame, particularly with the Women's World Cup potentially being in Australia in a couple of years. So we'll find out about that next month, I believe it is. Yeah, look, I, um, I've i been fairly down on sort of the W League as far as, you know, it's going to change. And there's no there's no question the rise of European women's football um, and sort of actually that, you know, the top clubs now actually uh, investing in it has sort of really changed the game for Australia. But I think um, as far as attracting the strongest possible competition left, um I think it might be a case of it has to sort of, again, find its own niche because I think if you try and sort of, you know, go head-to-head with, you know, to go in, say, the winter months, um, look, if you, you, I think traditionally a lot of the bulk of, our, of the players that have come into the W League have been from the US. So I think to go away from, from that sort of, you know, that, I guess that, like a better term, that breeding ground of players... Um, Look, I think, yeah, it just has to find its own niche as far as that. I think, yeah, it's not the end of the world that, you know, because at the moment it's only five or six Matildas. Uh, last time I checked, the Matildas were 23, 24 players. So you're still going to get quality Australian players in this league as long as you provide for them, ensure that, you know, they've got, they get getting paid properly, they're getting sort of the quality, you know, minutes. Um, so I think it's a case of it may have to go on its own tangent just to work within the women's calendar because the women's football calendar is very, very different to the men's worldwide. So um, it's, it's there, the national, the national sort of, um, International sort of competitions are based more around tournaments rather than sort of, you know, having leagues of like qualifiers or whatnot. So I think you've got to make exceptions, say, you know what, even if the A League, say, for example, goes to winter, um, we might face the prospect that, say, for example, the W League may have to still start in November to, to, um, to sort of, you know, cushion in between sort of the, the, between the NWSL seasons. Fair enough. All right. Um, 
yeah, well, that'll do it for the W League questions. Uh, moving on now, question four. With local competitions uh, set to begin in the next couple of months, we'll be more or less likely to go to a local game. Of course, once crowds are allowed in, I think one advantage of the NPL being what it is, I feel like most grounds you're not going to have too much uh, trouble when it comes to letting the crowds up to, I think, about 500. So, anyway, uh, Facebook, Nikki Harrison-McRae, definitely going to support our local teams. Grassroots football is where it all started through to the NPL, bring on the season. Liam, uh, Queensland Socceroos fans, Liam, uh, 100% going to Briggs Road. Matt Kennings, I'm itching to go back to watching Peninsula Power play, and with the way they started the season, I completely understand why. Uh, on Twitter, Neil, no more, no less, will be there as soon as I can be. Brandon says, more likely, really missing football. So, I think at the moment, everyone just wants some sort of live sport to go to, and I suppose the point I wanted to bring up with this question is, obviously, you know, with a lot of these grounds, it's actually going to be really tough to play these games, quote-unquote, behind closed doors, simply because, like, you look at the Cleveland showgrounds, you look at some of these other grounds that are just on public parks, like uh, Palabar, for instance, you're not going to be able to just rope off large sections here to keep people out. So I think, you know, a lot of... This could be a great opportunity for these clubs once crowds are allowed back to say, hey, we've got live sport, let's really, you know, go for it and see what they can do. But, yeah, I just... I don't know. I'm just very, very curious to see how this is going to play out in terms of letting crowds back in because I know... I I watched the Bundesliga over the weekend. Like, it was fine without crowds, but, God, you really miss that atmosphere, don't you, Adam? Yeah, look, that's the one thing about... Now, I don't think that the MPL... Uh, here, especially here in Queensland, is equipped to be behind closed doors. Um, uh, look, there are a lot of there are a lot of uh, venues, and you, you named a number of them, where basically the cost of trying to barricade it off, um, unless there is financial support, so say from Football Queensland and whatnot, would probably cost more than the actual takings they would actually get on the night to keep to have fans there. So uh, I think, yeah, basically, I think it would be a mistake. Um, as much as it can be without sort of, you know, shredding on social distancing rules for the MPL to go into, to go into the, uh, go to behind closed doors. I just think, and I know that's a big case in Victoria at the moment where clubs are almost saying, look, we're not going to play unless we get fans back. Understandably. Okay, and just quickly on that as well, uh, Football Queensland posted about 25 minutes ago, all 317 clubs across Queensland are invited to a statewide club webinar this Friday, 22nd of May from uh, 5 p.m. Join FQ CEO Robert Cavallucci as he discusses preparations for a return to football from June 12. Register your club's attendance at this link, which you can find on yourself in the Facebook post. Please note registration is limited to two per club. So it looks like the, like, it looks like the state federations are starting to make that um, work back. All right. Sorry, Scott. Sorry, James. Well, firstly, I think um, Liam might already be at Briggs Road, knowing him. He might. Yes, he might camp oh, no. there personally. And I think if they were going to do MPL behind closed doors, I think it would have to be a case of some clubs just could not play at their current home ground because of the fact that you cannot keep crowds out whatsoever. So it might be a case there where you play at grounds like Park de Perry, Spencer Park, maybe Lions, because you can kind of keep that closed off as well. Gold Coast Knights is not ground. You can keep people out. Those sorts of places, Peninsula Power as well, those sorts of places where you have perimeter fences where you could keep people out, I think you could do it. But otherwise, if it's just, I do agree with you. MPL would be one of the first leagues 
to be able to have crowds just based on the numbers that you have there. Also, it's been kind of nice actually not to have to be going to football for a while. Just speaking for myself, I mean, the amount of games I know that all the three of us go to in a calendar year, this is the longest I've gone without going to a football <laughs> game for at least five, six years. It's been, been quite nice just to have a break from doing that. I'm certainly missing it. And when the season does resume, whenever it does, I'll certainly be bouncing off the wall to be back. But it has been a little bit nice just to have a bit of a break from it. I think this is the closest I've had to weekends in about four years. Yeah, it's, it's the same here. Look, for me, I and I think the intent of the question was to show how much we, sort of more so the appreciation we have for local football because at the end of the day I think it's sort of been an afterthought in the shadow of you know the A-League and all that and hopefully like the A-League is important as well the grassroots of it as well and not having anything at the moment I think gives us a greater appreciation of, um, of of football in general yeah absolutely um, and look with that as well you know if you can't get to a game don't forget that uh, all FQ senior competitions are streamed live so you might hear a familiar voice commentating some of those games as well some of them have good commentators yeah, as well, don't they, James? <laughs> some of the games some have of them really have good, good commentators, and other ones have someone who's a little bit less than the quality. Isn't that right, James? Some of them have good commentators. Some of them have me. Exactly. <laughs> and then some of them have Scott and I, in which case the mute button comes in very handy. Anyway, yes, we're looking forward to getting back to that when it does come back. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think... We, I think we may wind up overcompensating over the next uh, few months when football does come back and just go to as many games as we can. So, anyway, for the time being, let's move on. Question five. Now, this was one that I'm not sure. I feel like this could either go for 45 minutes or five minutes, depending on how we go about this. But uh, question five. What's your preferred final system for the A-League? Uh, Facebook was Brown from Raw Supporters Federation. Um, aka Richard League champions are champions top 4 A-League club cup over 2 leagues to decide a winner put greater emphasis on winning the league Scott McCormick first pass the post but make it 33 rounds so teams play 3 times then if finals are needed make it top 4 Josh Godbold says no finals league champion is champion we need to get rid of this finals mentality we have Ross uh, Kibble says I'll be different I love the finals top 4 or top 5 though James Woodger um, or Woodger Nothing like finals drama. Otherwise, season will just fizzle out. Three others say no finals. One other says uh, top finals, top five final system. Uh, over on Twitter, Shane Henry at Geraldo. McIntyre top five is ideal for finals and should have been used for the last 10 years. But if when the A-League gets to 14 plus teams, I'd go a top seven plus a partial return to two legs. Weeks one, two, seven, three, six, and four, five. Uh, weeks two and three, one v fourth seed, second seed v third seed, home and away over two legs. And week four is the grand final. Now, my follow-up to this is whatever final system we settle on, is it better to keep a good team out or uh, let a bad team in? Adam, we'll start off with you. Uh, my choice would be you leave a good team out. I, I think, my, me personally, I, I, I think everyone's on the same page. I think, look, I think finals we have to have. I think that's just the Australian mentality and there's no point trying to be like Europe when it's a different... You've got to have finals. With that said, my my personal view is that top four, um, it, it doesn't matter if it is with 
11 teams, 12 teams, 16 teams. Top four, two legs, and then a grand final. And that makes sure that makes ensures that both, both the clubs and also it's all the FFA are happy with as far as ticket revenue goes. Um, that, that's, that's, that's sort of my thing. But I think, yeah, more, so less is more in my opinion. Yeah, I'll keep this pretty brief, James. I agree with basically everything Adam just said. I would put a far greater emphasis on winning the Premier's plate. I think it gets completely glossed over by everyone in this country when teams win that trophy. I think greater emphasis needs to be put on that. But in in our sporting landscape, finals and grand finals is what people understand. And I think we have to keep that as part of our, our sport just as we have to do it. So I agree, 1v4, 2v3 over two legs. The winners play off in a one-off grand final at the home of the highest seed. So I would leave it at that. But the only other thing I would consider is as the league does expand out into 14, 16 teams, you might be able to do something like what the K-League has done where they split the competition in half. After you play home and away once, you split in half and the top half then play play against each other once again and the bottom half play. And their bottom half is in relegation mode, so they play off for the relegation spots. The top half teams, say it might be seven, they play against each other once to see who finishes in the top four, and then you have your finals on top of that. That might be something else you could consider, but the way the league is currently run, anything more than four teams is a joke. I mean, that name hasn't happened yet, but if if even fifth or sixth were to go on and win the grand final, it just, it wouldn't sit right, would it? You couldn't really say they were the best team over the season. They were the best team for three weeks, basically. We roll our eyes when a team comes from third, like Melbourne Victory did, where you think are they fourth. basically were they yeah for fourth actually yeah. So, but um, just just on your point about the split of the season, as long as it's a simple uh, as far as splitting the league after two, I guess you know home and away the first time round, as long as it's some big convoluted system like there was in Japan a couple of years ago, which I think I think actually need to have a uh, master degree in mathematics to figure it out. So as long as it's not complex and you're trying to contrive things and whatnot, and it's just a simple—it's a simple format. Then yeah, no, I, I agree that's fine. But yeah, as far as the question about finals, yeah, for me, uh, top four. Okay. Yes, it has been for the last uh, well, for at least a couple of decades. Okay, now I get to weigh in on this. I, this is one that I feel very, very, very passionately about. So brace yourself. Look, finals—I get it. They're not you know, part of football per se, but this is, you know, football in Australia and finals are something that we are just like we're ingrained to have. And for all the complaints about, you know, uh, you know, Melbourne victory, winning it from fourth, cheapening the title of champions and, you know, not uh, a good, t- uh, bad team getting into the finals. Can you think of how many complaints there would be, you know, in each of the last however many seasons where there was a runaway premiere that we knew who it was going to be three months before the season ended. And everyone would then be saying, oh, football's boring. You know, they need a final system at the end to spice it up. I honestly feel like, you know, show me a Raw fan that would trade Orange Sunday 1, 2, or 3 for lifting the, like the way they lifted the title, uh, the premiership in the two years that they did the double. And I'll show you a fan that's completely full of it. Because, look, let's be honest, finals, you know, they're not always great. I accept that. But they give us those special moments as well. And, you know, it's a joy of cup football. I agree with you. You know, simple top four system. One, four, two, three, home and away into a grand final. You might have to find a way to expand that out to... You might have to even, you know, have play-in games when the league gets to 14 teams. If 
you know, three versus six and four versus five as a one-legged playoff before we go two legs. Either way, I just, yeah, I honestly feel like you can't, you can't get rid of the final system. It is something that is unique to the Australian culture. And let's be honest, like that grand final day is the marquee event for the A-League season. And yep. like the Raw posted that video of Luke Bratton winning the Premier's plate. That's great. But how many times do you have that happen? Or how many times do you have Manchester City winning it through Sergio Aguero? I think I was sitting at home watching uh, Central Coast lose to Adelaide. Same thing. That'd yeah, be right. Either way, that was a complete but... anti-climax. Everyone knew for weeks they were all going to win it, and they didn't even get to win it on their own. We were watching two other teams we don't really care about draw a game. It just didn't. It just didn't seem like it wasn't dramatic. And the one point I really agree with that you made in the Australian football landscape, if at the moment with no promotion and relegation, where it's only a premiership and a championship, you just you just couldn't have it. Like Sydney at the moment, well, they're ten points clear or something. It would just make the end of the season completely anticlimactic to the point where people would stop watching because that you know what's happening, it's, it just doesn't matter. So I agree at the moment, you definitely have to have finals and they add a lot to it. You're right. About 90% of the league's best games over the last 15 years have been finals. Not just because they're dramatic, just because the players rise to those occasions as well. So I definitely think we have to keep the final series, even if it is untraditional. Yep, I agree. And... Look, the, like the way that we see these finals play out as well, it just it gives us something extra, as you said at the end of the season, to really get invested in, and they just have that different feel to them as well. It's knowing that the season could end then and there, um, yeah. So, I I do think like they need to, and the other thing that I do want to see kept for the final system in Australia as well is the ability to host a grand final. Look, I know the AFL like grand final day MCG is absolutely spectacular i'm not going to argue that but you know you saw newcastle two years ago when they got to host the grand final you got to see optus stadium packed out for perth last year or you know suncorp stadium decked out in orange for the raw you don't get those moments unless you have a grand final and yeah look you always have the ability of an upset as well and hey see what happens the I one can, point i, can I will live... say though sorry oh sorry you go um, okay, yeah, so just quickly as well, look, I do think you need to keep a good team out in order to prevent a bad team getting in. I always go back to the Raw 17-18 season, I think, with, you know, Massimo Macaroni and Fahid Ben Kalfala. The Raw made the finals that year, but I think we can all accept they weren't a good team that year. So keep it to four teams. Say you have a fifth-place side that, you know, probably misses out on goal difference or something, they can feel hard done by it. Let them whinge and use it as motivation for next year. You know, the one quick thought. point I want to make is that I absolutely agree about the about grand final now and the club actually hosting it, um, not necessarily at their home ground, but so I guess the biggest stadium in the city. Um, because, yeah, like I said, I can live with it, a FFA Cup final being uh, at a neutral venue, but I think the A-League grand final, I think that, that needs to remain with you know the top the top team deserving to get the um to get to get the hosting rights. James, we don't have any stadiums in Australia which are such a football traditional stadiums to host these big events anyway. So it should definitely be at the home ground of the highest seeded team. And FFA Cup, I don't know how you determine that fairly, but I don't I don't think a neutral venue for that would work either. So that's just going to be one of those things where. 
that might have to be the luck of the draw who hosts it. But with the grand final, definitely at the, the highest seeded team hosts it, and it's a great occasion as we can all attest to. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And one final point on the FFA Cup final. I know the previous few years they just openly admitted it was being done for commercial decisions, but I think this past year it was a flip of the coin or a random, excuse me, a random draw or something. Maybe when you're doing the semi-final draw, um, obviously you've got the ability of an NPL club to host it as well, but maybe this... Yeah, we'll get to you in a second, Scott. Stop waving at me. But <laughs> we'll, uh, But maybe, you know, you do it the way um, they do... They determine who gets the home changing rooms for the FA Cup final in England, where you say, all right, this semi-final uh, gets to host the... If it's an A-League versus A-League final, or, you know, one day an NPL versus NPL FFA Cup final... You let one uh, semi-final, the winner of one semi-final, host it. Okay, Scott. I just last I, thought, and then we've got I, to move I, on. I, we got all the FFA listen to this and listen to everything that we say. Given what we talk about in our group chat, seems to end up happening a couple of weeks later. <laughs> so I'm going to try and preempt me and hope this happens. Do you know how the MPL National Final Series works with goals, goals away from home, yellow cards, all the rest? But that system determines who hosts from a week-to-week basis. Just do that. Yep. From round of 32 through the final, accumulate points. Whoever has the highest points by the end of the semi-finals, congratulations, you get to host. It's that simple. No, don't, yep. I have no objections to that. I think it's a much fairer way than a flip the coin. Or just say, oh, we're going to put it there for commercial reasons. I actually counter that a flip of the coin is the fairest way because it is an absolute 50-50 chance. Ah, yeah. At least no, that true. method would give people no. control of their own destiny to a point. It won't happen. Yeah. True. Okay, question six. Uh, we're about an hour and ten into the podcast the recording, so I think we're still going quite strong. At least I hope we are. Uh, assuming no new stadium gets built. Now, Adam, assuming no new stadium gets built. Oh, sorry. Audio what is it... thumb, my thumbs up. <laughs> what is the ideal way for Brisbane to spread their home games? Because obviously they've had issues with Suncorp Stadium. We're all well aware of that. So the options we posted were all at Suncorp. All at Dolphin, mix of the two, specify. Mostly at Suncorp with three to five games around Queensland, specify. Or another stadium combination, specify. Now, Troy Dooley, I'll give him this. He gave us a whole lot to digest here. So, um, as it currently stands, I don't see the... Se- yeah, hey, I'm, I'm happy for it. You know, give us all give us all the comments that we can get because it makes my job easier. As it currently stands, I don't see the Southeast region has a solution to fit the Raw's needs. Regular season games, Dolphin is the right size, just a bugger of a drive to and from, especially for a weeknight game. Too small for finals and no public transport for the majority of fans coming from Brisbane. Perry Park, too small, insufficient parking, good public transport. Had the strikers bid been successful, uh, the proposed redevelopment of Perry Park would have made it the ideal location uh, and capacity. A deal could have been struck to provide a home for the raw, similar to how Allianz Arena is shared between Bayern and 1860 Munich or San Siro with respect to AC and Inter Milan, or AB Park for Melbourne, Victory and City. Lions at Richlands, on par with Perry Park for size, good parking, probably not for public transport. Uh, Gold Coast, on, yep. uh, on reflection, no and hell no. Seriously, Rubina is a nice stadium in and of itself. Location-wise, it's on par with Dolphin for driving distance, but lacks a comparable parking. Public transport, you've got a, the train to Rubina and a hike to the stadium, or the Gold Coast buses. Ballymore, too small, no parking, and SFA public transport. I'll let you translate that for yourself. (laughs) Um, And also on that as well, the stands at Ballymore, I don't think are actually safe to have people in it. Suncorp, 
great for public transport, access facilities, massively oversized, even by the most generous crowd numbers in the season, too expensive in terms of club costs and food and drink service. Finals only when FFA are wearing the cost to the venue, since the FFA... Which is what profits. does happen. Yep. FFA pulls profits from finals. Um, yeah, talking about uh, wearing the costs and whatnot. Alternative venues, uh, QSAC may have been an option, but considering how far the field is uh, away from any seating, it just kills the atmosphere. And we also remember that night. <laughs> yes, thank yep. you, Scott. You cut me off from saying that. <laughs> Gabba slash Metricon are made for AFL and as such suffered the same disconnect as QSAC. Having said that, Metricon is a similar drive to Seabus and Dolphin. Good parking around there. Uh, no idea about public transport. Gabba nails public transport, so driving, parking becomes a non-issue. Facilities are first class and uh, just a little bit smaller than Suncorp as well. Unless crowd numbers replicate victory at the MCG, it wouldn't be worth moving from Suncorp. Diane Farrell, I'd like half and half, to be honest, between Dolphin and Suncorp. Atmosphere of Dolphin, uh, despite likes the atmosphere of Dolphin despite having a lengthy commute to get there. However, I also still like Suncorp when there's a bigger crowd there. Scott McCormick, five at Dolphin, rest at Suncorp. Vasil Oriopoulos, I apologise if I mispronounced that. Uh, mix of the two, most games at Dolphin with bigger games and finals at Suncorp. Robert Vandenberg, three locations, some at Suncorp, some at Dolphin, and some at a venue on the south side. Ben Ryan, Dolphins in Perry Park, uh, one regional game and one Gold Coast. Uh, Was slash Richard, all at Dolphin until the Raw build their own boutique venue. James Atten's not that keen on Dolphin, it's too far to commute. Charles Pace, uh, Adam, I think you know him. If Dolphins oh, could be yeah, upgraded... I think I think family members could be part of this. <laughs> Mum, Dad, if you're listening, you definitely can't be a part of this. Uh, yes, Adam's dad says, uh, if Dolphins can be upgraded to suit corporate standards, then all home games should be there. Twitter, uh, Neil Johnson, at Neil Jono, uh, should be all at Suncorp, but that venue has alienated an awful lot of people, which means moving to Dolphin would make sense financially and probably help attract fans back to the club. Uh... Brandon Clark, all at Dolphin, um, not happy about Suncorp. He's a Kiwi fan with an axe to grind. Okay, because I'm talking, I'm I'm going to go for my uh, solution. So next, so I think 13 home games is the minimum they need to have next season. So the way I would split it, uh, five at uh, Suncorp, or six at Suncorp, five at Dolphin, one on the Gold Coast, and one in Townsville at the new stadium up there. So I feel like you're still keeping the bulk of the games in and around the south like out of the in around the brisbane area where it needs to be dolphin look i think they the way that the fans have bought into the game said they've earned the right to have five games up there and you know i think you really can't beat the atmosphere up there uh suncorp it is still the raw's home for the time being so you need to give them you know the big games the victories the sydney's the even perth and adelaide i would say probably should be up there um, and then, you know, you have the Gold Coast. Look, I'm just being completely selfish here. I like the drive down to Rabina and, you know, I love the idea of possibly turning it into a day down the coast. And then, obviously, you've got that new stadium in Townsville. Chances are there would be a pretty decent financial incentive to play there and give that new Jonathan Thurston Stadium a little bit of a, a bit of extra tenancy. Adam? Well, um... Look, uh, we we discussed this off air, so I won't I won't sort of um, elaborate on that. No too new much. stadium. Oh no no no! Like I said, it, 
No, 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 no. I don't think that's going to happen anyway. So, uh, given, given what's going on, um, look, as far as uh, sort of, I guess in the short term, look, I think um, actually, sort of in a way, I agree with you, um, James. That you know, maybe having a bigger split, you know, having having sort of you know, maybe five five games at Suncorp, five games at Dolphin. I think Dolphin deserves more. Um, I think. I think that I think for size, especially if you tier it where the lot where you get the non-attracting um, fans like like uh, games like you know Mariners like Newcastle uh, for somehow City gets involved in that, but I think that's because they actually like playing at Redcliffe. Um, yeah, like I think, I think uh, but also season. as well, I think it, as, what was that they won't answer what happened this season. <laughs> that's true. But, we were um, both overseas for that, Adam. Yeah. That that's probably that was probably the uh, the jinx on them, but um, yeah, look, I think it's spread. I think I don't think it's practical anymore to play thirteen game home games at Suncorp. I just don't think um, financially it's just it's just crippling the club. But I think I think they need to sort of look at alternatives. But I think for the I guess in the short term. Um, I think you're having a bigger mix because I think as well you can also tier them as that if those. Those are uh, fans that want to go and see, you know, the likes of a Sydney FC uh, victory. You know, those big drawing things. I think Suncorp Stadium is perfect for it, but I think for some of these other clubs, which, you know, you know it's more for the casual fan. I think, um, well, actually, I should say more for the hardcore fans. Um, I think maybe Dolphin or and, and the regional games. Uh, just quickly as well, uh, when you consider that, uh, you've also got things like um, with Dolphin, Obviously, it's going to alienate a few people that like to come from the south side as well, Scott. It could, and that's actually why we're not actually in too much of a disagreement here. Um, I actually said eight games at Suncourt against the higher drawing opponents to be played in time slots that are less convenient for travel to Dolphin Stadium. So your nighttime games, you wouldn't want to play them at Dolphin. So you play those at Suncourt. I I said four or five games at Dolphin, all of which you'd try and kick off in that between 3 and 4 p.m., time slot on a Saturday or Sunday afternoon because it yeah, maximises okay. the opportunity for people to travel. And for people I've spoken to who went to those games, they really enjoyed the day out to go up to the peninsula, yeah. make a day of it, have lunch on the beach and then go to the game afterwards. So I think that sort of thing four or five times a year could be really attractive for people, but I wouldn't go too much further than that. The other thing I would do with those games at Dolphin is I would turn them almost all the middle doubleheaders with either the W League team or the Y League team, because we know why it doesn't happen at Suncorp. It's too expensive to keep that stadium open for an extra two or three hours for the minimal amount of people who go and attend them. But you could do doubleheaders at Dolphin Stadium with the new the new grandstand being built there, I believe has two new change rooms underneath it. So you could do doubleheaders up there. So you would be able to make those four or five games you have up there really big events up there. I think that's the key to make them events. If they are lesser drawing teams like a Mariners or a Wellington, sorry. If it's teams like that and you have double headers that you can get people excited to go and see both teams up close and in person, because it is a closer venue than Suncorp. Mm. Suncorp was when it was open was built as the closest knit stadium in the country and Dolphin certainly feels much closer than that. So I definitely think it's a stadium which deserves more. It's a it's a region which is investing heavily in that stadium, and that needs to be rewarded. There's no doubt about that. So four or five games up there, eight games at Suncorp, and then if you are going to take a game to Townsville or the Gold Coast or something like that, split the difference. Maybe one time you take that game off Suncorp, the next time you take it off Dolphin. But that sort of split, 
eight games at Suncorp, four or five at Dolphin, to me would be a really good mix. Yep, I agree. I think Dolphin should probably have... Like, five is that magic number for Dolphin because it still maintains that novelty factor without being... without raising too many eyebrows on other Raw becoming the Redcliffe Raw. But on this as well, like, obviously, we're going to be seeing a very, very different uh, financial uh, landscape when businesses start to, you know, get to reopen as well. And I feel like for the Raw, if they can find a way to... Like, try and just get their... Like, get their funds back, you know. Maybe they do have to take a game regionally and whatnot. Like, that might be the best way for them to do it and limiting the the fact that they're losing money every time Suncorp comes in. Now, look, I feel like the easy way to say this is that, like, the Raw just need to find a way to get more people to show up Suncorp Stadium. But, look, if you had that magic potion, then I'm sure there will be a whole lot of ways to do it. Now, the next point that I want to get onto as well, you touched on there, Scott, was... Like, the ideal kickoff times for Redcliffe. Obviously, I feel like it is a very limiting venue because it is, what, 45 minutes north of the city where maybe you could get away with a Friday night game, but I do feel like the only nighttime game you could probably have there, you know, one of those primetime fixtures would be on a Saturday night because I feel like that's the only time that you'd even be able to really get, like, people be able to have too much time out there because on a Sunday, you're probably limited to 4 or 5 o'clock because... I can't imagine going there for a 6 or 7 p.m. kickoff on a Sunday in that, you know, prime TV slot because, like, say, you know, after the match, we've got to do the press conferences and post-game shows and stuff like that. We head back to, like, we're not getting back until about 10, 30, 11 o'clock with work the next morning. And I know for me, I'm starting to wonder, is it really worth feeling like rubbish the next day? I think the telling factor is, James, that the average crowds, I don't have the exact numbers in front of it, the two games this year... At Dolphin and the A-League were played in that afternoon window. They were almost sellouts, basically. It was like just over 9,000 people for each of them. You look at the two crowds the FFA Cup games played there midweek, it was about five and a half to 6,000 average, which that tells you that's probably what you would see turn up to a Sunday evening kickoff game up there. And I think it's, it's telling as well because the FFA Cup game this year, there was a lot of interest and hype around that because... New coach for the Raw with Robbie Fowler. They'd just beaten Sydney FC away from home. And there was a bit of genuine excitement about how are they going to play. And it's still, even on a midweek night, it's still only got 6,000 up there. So I definitely think that Redcliffe games, you're going to have to schedule them right. And that's why I said you would schedule them in the afternoon kickoff window. Just be fair about your comparison on the FFA Cup games. Those those six thousand, that was still probably the, that was the you know, the best crowds in the FFA Cup. Like the FFA Cup is not a competition that tracks crowds, so it's it's sort of you know comparing apples and oranges. But look, I, I but with that said, I do agree that um, I don't think they can. I don't think they should have night games at like A League games at Dolphin at night. I think unless there's a massive investment in the lighting there, which I think uh, from, I think I read somewhere that um, Suncorp Stadium's lights are like three times as powerful and with residential areas, you know, close in the hospital and whatnot, I don't think you can go to those sort of lengths as far as floodlighting anyway. I just don't think the Morton Bay Regional Council allow it. So I think as a day venue, I think it's great. And that may be the point of difference. You have your night games at Suncorp, you have your day games at, um, at Dolphin and, and like I said, then you have your two regional games. That might be your determining factor as far as um, trying to differentiate the two venues. And that's a great point because it would also make the games at Suncorp feel special. If you know you've got mm. only six, seven, eight, whatever it ends up being games at Suncorp, 
You actually think, okay, I have to go to these games now because then my next one might not be yeah. for a couple of months down the road until the next night game. So it makes not only the Redcliffe games during the day a special event, it also makes the games at Suncorp like that as well. So I think that's definitely a, that's a valid point as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 100% on board with that. And there's there's a lot that there's a lot that I feel like can still be done with the way that the Raw get creative. Now, the one point I did want to touch on very briefly was in terms of taking games out of Brisbane. Now, look, it is the Brisbane Raw. I feel like they should play all of their games or as many of their games as possible within, you know, the Brisbane region. But I don't think that game... I remember there was a a game against Wellington at Seabus, which was obviously... It was an awful, awful day where that storm hit about an hour before kickoff. And I was actually trapped at the shop. <laughs> That's right. I just remember being trapped at the uh, shopping centre having lunch uh, before the game because I went down a little bit early because I thought, well, why not? But I don't. I wouldn't be against the Raw saying, all right, we're going to take a game to Seabus. We're going to take a game to Sunshine Coast. You know, just one regional game per year, one game up in Townsville. Or, you know, even hell, take a game up to Toowoomba. Scott, you and I were at that... Um, ground up there now i don't think i don't think that's you know going to have a huge capacity but you know it it would be interesting to see how the football would go up there anyway i'm just you've got to be careful though not to give up your home ground advantage you want to have one prime home field that's your home ground your home ground advantage you don't want to give that up we've seen with west sydney wanderers when they were going around different grounds the last couple of years as bank west was being built they really struggled not having a, a pure home ground so you've got to be very careful with how you do it as well but one home match per year going you know out of this little bubble here I don't think would be I don't think would that would break that look I think I think ideally you'd want to have you want to have your all your home games in one venue but I think you've got to be realistic is that the fact is is that you know the costs of having 13 games at Suncorp Stadium is, is financially crippling for the club and no, I think in an ideal perfect world if if the if so, for example, Queen Stadium's Queensland um, were to backflip and give the same sort of concessions to the Wanderers that they do to, like, for the Wanderers down in Sydney at Bank West. If, if they were to do that for um, the Raw, then you know what? Then maybe having every game at Suncorp as far as a, a competitive advantage is ideal. But I think the whole situation is that it's basically that, you know, you've got the, you've, the club has to make money at some point because it just can't keep going on where, you know, the club has basically been financially bled dry because of uh, Suncorp save and they're not, and they're basically running out of loss every game. No, I agree with that. Oh, the other thing I want to say, right back to what Troy said at the start about the idea of a stadium in Brisbane being a joint shared one like you see in the San Siro. So I think that is... If and when we ever do get a hypothetical stadium in Brisbane for the Raw, I do think that's what it would end up being, the sort of ground where both A-League teams kind of shared it. And it was the home ground of both. Like you'd like to put your manager about Amy Park down in Melbourne, it would be very much like that, I feel, where it wouldn't be the Raw have this home ground over here, the other team has this ground over here, and then that's it. It would be, to me, one shared ground. And I think that's long-term, whenever this that's actually possible. We're talking about it off-air when that may or may not be possible but longer term the ideal scenario would be would be that but we're a long way from that now I was like, also, that's the, a good point that the, Troy made in his message at all oh yeah definitely that that was a fantastically well thought out response as well so we appreciate those well thought out responses and 
hopefully when we continue to post stuff on uh, the Raw Review Facebook or at BNE Football on Twitter, we continue to get those well-thought-out responses. Anyway, well, that actually does kind of lead us perfectly into question seven, uh, which is, when Queensland gets the second professional football team in the A-League or second division, where should that team be based? Brisbane, specify where. Ipswich, Gold Coast, Redcliffe, Sunshine Coast, North Queensland, or somewhere else, specify. Now, this got quite a few responses. Um, We've covered the local derby debate, I think, since about episode three from this podcast. Uh, But curious to hear what everyone else has to say. Uh, Richard Haynes says, whoever earns it and has sound financials and admin. Good fence sitting. Uh, Oh, yes, definitely. No, that I agree. I just want to know who has uh, sound financials and admin. Uh, Drew Anderson, Sunshine Coast or Ipswich. Gold Coast is yet to prove it wants a sporting team of any code. North Queensland should only be an option if we move to a winter season. Uh, Terry Kirkham, it'll be Redcliffe based with a fully owned community stadium. Tony Fraser, far away from the Gold Coast, as good as throwing money down the drain. Ipswich is a good option, great football heritage. Liam, shockingly, says uh, an Ipswich United bid. <laughs> Plenty of clubs in Ipswich that have staff and know-how, plus historical club links to the game, including Socceroos. Richard Raw. Good to hear from him. North Queensland. Damien Walters, noted Townsville or Gold Coast as they already had their chance and failed. I will say Gold Coast United version one and North Queensland Fury really do need to come with an asterisk in terms of how those clubs were managed. And I feel like a complete change will uh, make it different. Uh, Phil Hal says, haven't got enough support for one team as it is. I beg to differ with that. Uh, votes in the comments. Uh, Lions 1, Strikers 1, Gold Coast Knights 2, Ipswich 1, Townsville 1, Cairns 1, Sunny Close slash Redcliffe 2. Twitter, uh, at West Glory, Graham Fletcher says, Pen Power Dolphin Stadium, which obviously could create issues that the Raw want to keep playing there. Scott McCormick says, Gold Coast Knights. Chris Eagles, Look the Part FC, says, Strikers. Kirk underscore 14, Brisbane City. Uh, Troy Chandler, Leaf the Cup, Liam again, and The Pit, Western Pride FC, say, uh, Ipswich, uh, especially if they're all going to play. Yeah. yeah I'm, I'm shocked that, you know, some of the biggest Western Pride fans there say, hey, maybe get an A-League team out here. Uh, Dom at Alt Baller, Ipswich, but only if they get their own stadium. Uh, Jordan Renoff at Jordan Renoff, Brisbane, you guys need a derby and some tribalism. John Lang, anywhere but Gold Coast, they're the death knell for many teams across many codes. An Ipswich or Sunshine Coast team would be fine. Uh Boz at Boz White, a Wanderers fan. North Queensland is hard to split between Cairns and Townsville, a bit like Tasmania, the Tasmania debate between Hobart and Launceston. Uh, Eric uh, Gundawilly has to be Penn Power, successful club, ready-built stadium, and a massive fan base, including Sunshine Coast. Gold Coast had their chance and blew it, and I don't think Ipswich could sustain a team long-term. Add two or three marquee players to Penn Power, and they would compete straight away. Maybe a little bit optimistic there, but I do think that uh, Penn Power is a decent shout. Dan at Dan R. Cole. For people saying Lions, Raw R. Lions in some people's mind. I'm a Strikers fan, so I'd watch them every week. Neil Johnson at Neil Jono. Sunshine Coast and Redcliffe are two locations to have suitable stadiums and a potential fan base. Gold Coast has demonstrated that it won't leave its condos to watch anything. Obi-Wan Cannoli at... Uh, I can't read that. Uh, needs it to be an established NPL club with its own facilities. Lions, City and Strikers would be my first choices. Interested listener at New Briz. A local derby would be great, so somewhere away fans could get to the stadium by public transport in a reasonable amount of time. Uh, My Sunshine Coast gave it a retweet, so presuming that's a vote for Sunshine Coast as well. So <laughs> You'd hope so. You would think so, yes. Okay, so 
I want to park the local derby debate and uh, come back to that at the end. So can one of you two please remind me on that if I try and end this before that. Uh, Ipswich. Okay, good. Okay, Ipswich. I think the best way for Ipswich to happen is obviously they need a stadium. There's talk of an Ipswich uh, Jets rugby league team coming into the NRL as well when they do their expansion. Uh, so naturally there's a little bit to work with there as Scott's fan, I think, on his computer just decides to go, hey, what? Jeez. <laughs> okay, I, I, didn't know, I didn't know if you had Freddy Krueger outside with the chainsaw or something. Anyway, Ipswich. Obviously for me, uh, and this is a big question I think needs to come with a lot of these bids as well, is will it be a standalone bid uh, with a stadium or is it going to work with another code or another team or a local club? So Ipswich, obviously, they've got uh, Western Pride, uh, Ipswich Knights in the local competition as well. Yep. Uh, you've got Gold Coast. Look, I'm a little... I, I don't think Gold Coast is the right choice for another A-League side. In second division, absolutely especially if they get Gold Coast Knights or Gold Coast United back up there. And I think both clubs probably have that sort of ambition. Uh, Redcliffe and the Sunshine Coast, I feel like those two could probably wind up joining forces and getting a pretty strong bid together. Like, you've got a decent Sunshine Coast stadium up there. But again, that's probably better served for Second Vision, North Queensland, who knows. And yeah, so those are the non-Brisbane-based bids. Adam, what do you think about those? Yeah, look, um, what I what I think is very different to what I have for my, my personal opinion is I'd love to see a sort of a Redcliffe, you know, Sunshine Coast conglomerate because like I said that's you know my part of town. What I think will happen is I think Ipswich is a very, very good shout. I think um, obviously because they're probably the closest to having probably to tick the boxes as far as an A-League bid. Um, if we're talking about second division, I reckon you know, one of the Gold Coast sides, you know, be it Knights or United, might be sort of a decent shout for that. Um, as far as sort of, you know, yeah, like it, I think it, it, I don't think it has to be, if you're talking about A-League, I don't think you have to have an established, um, you know, sort of club. But if we're talking second division, that I think it does has to be. Scott? Okay, so I'll start in the north and work down. So in the north, I think it's an interesting issue. You've got the Townsville's got the better infrastructure, but Kansas has shown over the history of the MPL when both were in it, they were the more competitive club. They qualified for the FFA Cup, made an MPL grand final, and they were more competitive, but I don't see how either of those are viable, even in the medium term, to be honest with you. We saw the Fury were up there that didn't quite work for a large large range of reasons. I know Jamie pointed out there's stuff in the old regime why but I think that's something we have to park and really look at in the longer term I think I think Adam's neck of the woods is actually a really really compelling case you've got not one boutique stadium but two and that's the thing that Australian football is looking for at the moment you've got Dolphin Stadium and Sunshine Coast Stadium which both would be perfect stadiums for either a second division or a new A-League side we've seen Dolphin personally how good it can be so I think there's a lot of strong points up there. We were talking yesterday off there as well about the South Pine Sporting Complex for all, for all sorts of reasons. That looks like it could be a really good base for an A-League team. So that that would, to me, be absolutely perfectly ready to go. You've got a training ground pretty much ready to go and you've got two stadiums ready to go. They look like they would be in the box seat from the regional teams. I think Gold Coast, I agree with both of you. I think it's a second division type of thing where Knights United either need to fight it out to see who's the best bid I'll work out how to work together to make that happen. I think it'll be 
probably be two separate bids and the best one will emerge. Ipswich is a really, really fascinating case because there's a lot of history of football in that part of the world. A lot of soccerers have come from that part of the world. And actually the first game of football was played in that part of the world between Brisbane FC and the Wooguru Lunatic Asylum. Now, I don't think we're going to call the Ipswich team the Wooguru Lunatic Asylum, but that was back in 1875, the first game of football in Queensland and Australia. So there's a lot of history and tradition out that way. And there was talk of a of a stadium plan in the Ipswich Springfield area before the last election. I don't know whether the new new government out there hold the same thought or if that's still even in consideration in the world we live in now. But I think the Ipswich opportunity, if it's there, would be fantastic. If it's not there, I definitely think that Redcliffe-Sunshine Coast corridor has a lot of things you would look at and think, think this, this is a viable option. Because you could see those two stadiums being filled by people in that part of the world and getting behind their team. I think I think there's a real possibility, if not for the A-League, but a second division. I think it's a lot, there's a lot going for that for that corridor up there in the Moreton Bay area. Absolutely. And the other point on that as well is just, okay, I know Dolphin Stadium and Sunshine Coast Stadium aren't the biggest venues, but I feel like that's going to work for them as well. We saw what happened with the Wanderers when they came in. They did a fantastic job engaging the community. We know that, but... The other thing that worked so well for them was the fact that they were selling out the 16,000-seat Parramatta Stadium in the, early, in the early days, and it actually became a ticket that you actively had to go seek out. Yeah. And, you know, we've said it all along. That is one of the biggest problems the Raw have with Suncorp, where if you want a ticket, it's not that hard to get one. In fact, I feel like it's quite easy to. And I feel like with the... Like, if you happen to pack out 11,000 at Dolphin, or 10,000, 11,000 at Dolphin every time you're playing there and the five and a half, six thousand or whatever Sunshine Coast Stadium holds. Oh, 12,000. Okay, wow. I really can't count. I think that includes uh, so the grass anyway. banking as well. Is that how many else there at Elton John's concert? I'm not sure. I looked it up. It's 12,000 capacity. <laughs> but I think there's scope to expand it out as well if you look at it. I think it's only one grandstand, isn't it? Yeah. So you could expand that out. You could make that into a 20,000 seat stadium. If, if ever there was the demand for it, hypothetically, you could do that. Yeah, exactly. So, but that also means where it becomes, you know, it becomes, you know, that sort of, the sort of club where you have to actually go for it and, you know, become much more invested because you do value the experience of going to those games. Okay. Now, final point, because the, uh, this is actually also the final question because the last one didn't actually get posted on uh, Facebook because there was a bug with scheduled posts. So, uh Go on to the local derby debate then. Now, I feel like the two leading contenders we've got here in Brisbane are Strikers and City. I feel like City probably have the better scope for development. We saw them progress in the last round of A-League expansion bidding. But I, I do think that if they do want to go for the club that could help and also ruin the Raw, the derby is the way to go. Because we've seen it uh, go so well in Sydney, but... We do know as well that there are a lot of football fans here that haven't bought into the Raw for one reason or another. I don't think that's unfair to say, whether it's, you know, some of the off-field controversies they've had in the past when it comes to, you know, non-payment of players or any of the other stuff that's gone on as well. I feel like there's a massive football base here in Brisbane that the Raw have only really probably tapped into about 15, 20% of. We've seen the grand final sell out, but they haven't found a way to stuck. And 
look, one way or another, it might actually put a lot more pressure on the Raw to go out of their way to try and engage these fans as well because it actually becomes a competition rather than just a monopoly on the marketplace. Yeah, I'll just start with a question to you. If, when I say, who's the who's the Raw's biggest rival in the city of Brisbane? Which club is it? Themselves. Really? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, to I, me, it is, but to me, the obvious, the obvious rival club is the Strikers. It goes way back to 2005. Both clubs are bidding for the A-League licence. The Raw got it, the Strikers didn't, and the the core Strikers fan base have never gotten over it. They've never truly embraced the Raw in any way whatsoever. To me, that... You won't call them out by name? No, no, but well, it's not one or two people. It's the whole fan base of the Strikers <laughs> that have not... In, okay, not, 12, not, sorry. They, they may not necessarily go to Strikers games anymore either because they're not in the top tier of football, but they don't, enga- and don't embrace the Raw. To me, that should divide right there in the city of Brisbane, that... That right there, and I think if it was to come in, that it was to be Brisbane Strikers or City or somebody else, it would force the Raw immediately to up their game commercially in the city of Brisbane. Every single way you think about it, whether you think they're doing the best they can or they're not, it would force them to go to the next level. Because you look at what happened in Sydney with when the Wanderers came in and they were successful. That's what spurred this recent re- renaissance of the Sydney FC side on under Graham Marvel, it was the fact that West Sydney Wanderers came in, did so well, they made two grand finals, won a Champions League, it forced Sydney FC to go right. If we want to keep our footing as the number one team in Sydney, we have to increase everything that we do. Melbourne victory the same when Sydney came in. They've never been threatened by Sydney the way that the Wanderers have threatened Sydney, but they've upped their game to the point where they're now the clear established number one. A, A second team in Brisbane, whoever it is, would force the roar immediately to go to that level and that would only force would be the best for both teams because they would both be fighting each other to be the best they can be and I think you'd get the best results from that and I think as much as I like Brisbane City in the argument that they have and you could hark back to the old Brisbane Classico Lions Brisbane City the fact they were the first two teams in from Brisbane in the NSL I think Strikers Raw would be the one that would really get get Brisbane Brisbane going in terms of the best rivalry and I think that's that's if it's if if it's viable and all things are equal, that'd be the way I would go. I agree, and on that point as well, like obviously when we saw Melbourne Heart slash Melbourne City come into the A League, their whole point of difference was just simply we're not Melbourne Victory. I feel like if Strikers or City come in, a that's going to be their uh, you know major point, but they've also got that history behind them that probably will make the difference and allow them to have a little bit more success compared to where Melbourne City slash Hart haven't. And that's, you know, hopefully something that will work in their favour as well. And as you said, Scott, it will spur on that competition. Adam? Yeah, look, I actually look at it uh, from a different prism. I actually, actually I disagree with the whole, oh, let's just put Strikers slash City into the league just to create a rivalry. I actually think the way that the population bases in Brisbane are... I think you can pretty much, you know, have that rivalry with a team that's based on, you know, the Sunshine Coast, Ipswich, Gold Coast. You've got to remember, we're all one big greater Brisbane area. I, I think just for, unless they had a compelling commercial argument, I just, just parachuting strikers into the league just for the sake of a local derby, I don't think it's the right way to go. I think, because I think you're basically um, giving them a free kick as far as, you know, just on sort of just, you know, on emotion and, and whatnot. I think at the end of the day, you probably could have a local derby that will mean something 
with no matter what region. It doesn't have to be based on history. It's how that new team come about and really go after the Raw as far as being a rival before they've even kicked the ball in anger on the pitch. So that, that's my take. I just don't think you should reward, you know, an entity like Strikers just because they were, you know, they've, they've for the last you know, 15 years been sort of, you know, the thorn in their side almost in, in some regards. Yeah, just to be clear, I'm not saying give it to them just because they're from Brisbane. I'm saying if a, if all things are equal, if the Ipswich bid, the Morton Bay bid, and the Strikers bid yeah. are all equally strong in their own ways, then you might tip it to within the city of Brisbane because it would give you more of a commercial opportunity. I'm not, but if 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 one of those other bids is better across the board than the Strikers bid, too bad. The best bid as as the first, I forget who was the first comment, James, in this whole thing. The best bid commercially, whoever's got the best stadium plan, the best commercial yep. plan, should win out. And that's absolutely correct. And I think the way the FFA looking at this, I th- we look at recent history, how they did Western United and MacArthur, it was the two best bids. It was the bids that at the time looked like they had stadium plans in place. If you say so, the best bids? Well, from oh, Sydney and Melbourne been. anyway, the best bids from Sydney and Melbourne, the way they looked at it. <laughs> Whether or not the Western United bid say anything ever happens, at least they had it on paper compared to the Dandenong bid who had nothing. So they went with that because of the stadium plan. And MacArthur have a stadium built ready to go. So they kind of did choose the most ready-made or the ones that they thought would be ultimately successful. So I do think that... I don't think it would just be, oh, the strikers have got a heritage name. You're in no matter what. It would have to be, what's your business plan? What's your stadium plan? Do you have a plan? And I think... Again, all things being equal, I would I would go with them, but I agree with you. No matter which, whoever it is, I definitely think it would be a rivalry. We all missed the Gold Coast M1 derby. That was fantastic, the way that went off. And we lost it too soon, and I do think even if it is a Gold Coast or Sunshine Coast, it would have that. But two teams in the one city really fighting for supremacy, I think that would really take things to the next level, if, if it's possible. But you're I know, right, I know you say that, Scott... Wet. I was say I know you say that that about that, but there are there are fans out there that actually do think that, say for example with strikers, that they have an entitlement to being the second, the the second team, no matter when when expansion happens. I know that's what I say. I definitely disagree with them. I think you need to have a commercial plan. This whole emotion of heritage, just in 2020 going forward, just just does not exist. I think it would be a very foolish thing for the league to buy into that. So I, I know what you're saying, but there is that sense out there that there's, a, there's fans out there that think for a lot of their cl- own clubs, think that, oh, we did this, and so, especially in, down in Melbourne, you know, South Melbourne, those fans think they have an entitlement to be there based on history. So that, that's, I think this is where I think we've got, where the commercial side of thing, I know FFA cops a lot of flack for it, but at the end of the day, it's about having a sustainable league, not because it's based on emotion and history. So, you know, I, I know that you didn't mean that, but I, there's definitely that undercurrent that there, there is that entitlement. No, I agree with that, okay. Adam. And also, we'll say, when this, whoever this is, when they come in, we want them to stay. We don't want another Gold Coast United yep. where we're just getting Absolutely. the getting the building blocks of a really good rivalry and then it disappears. Whoever it is, we want them to stay. So I certainly agree it's got to be commercial above anything else. Well, that's that's pretty much what I was going to say there as well. It seems like there's going to need to be a full like audit, I suppose, of the resources of these bids because it's all well and good saying, yeah, as I said, you've got the rivalry with strikers, you've got you know the facilities possibly set up there with uh, Morton Bay, Redcliffe, Sunshine Coast, but all in, all in all, these clubs need to find a way to make sure that whatever they've got 
they're able to hold on to and make themselves a sustainable team. And the other thing as well, so for me it comes down to obviously having the stadium and training facilities, which is huge for a lot of these clubs as well. Having, I suppose, the corporate appeal, making sure that you are going to be able to cover your costs. Uh, having the market to actually come and attack a uh, fan base and try and bring not just the fans that you know have tried the A-League before, but the football fans that have said, it's not for me because it's too far to come down to Brisbane. And also the big thing, a stadium. And that is where I do think a lot of these local clubs will fall short because, like, again, we're not going down this rabbit hole, but you're going to need a massive redevelopment of Perry Park or uh, Spencer Park for City or Strikers or any other local Brisbane club that needs that's going to want to come in. You know, out of Ipswich, they're going to need to try and uh, do up some sort of stadium out there as well. You're going to need a team that's got a home to play in, plain and simple. And if you can't provide that... You know, maybe the Strikers or City, if we do go for the local derby option, they're going to have to play out of Suncorp for a couple of years while that's, before that's a viable option. But they need better facilities, plain and simple, if they are going to be a top-flight professional club. Adam, we'll give I you just, the last I, thought on I this. I just will clarify one thing from what I was saying before. This is looking in the prism of a um, you know, of entry into the A-League in the franchise era. Now, for those clubs like... Strikers and see like that. If they get if they get selected into the second division and they and they and they earn their way in the A League by promotion, that's a different story. But I mean, you know, at the moment the way the A League is being picked, where it's being the franchise model, yeah, no, I I disagree that that they the entitlement they have, I don't think it's valid. Okay, Scott, your last thought. Then we've got to wrap up. I just hope it is the best bid, whoever it is, whether it's a Brisbane bid or a regional bid. I just hope it's the best bid. Because we, we need this to be a success. I think we can't have any more A-League expansion failures in Queensland. This has got to work. Yep, that's it. There is absolutely zero margin for error, whether it's, you know, bringing teams into, you know, Queensland, bringing it into New South Wales, bringing it into pretty much any other uh, place in Australia. Like, And that's going to be the same for the National Second League as well. All right. We've been going for an hour and 50 minutes, so I think that's going to be it for this edition of the Brisbane Football Review. So, thank you, Adam. Yeah, thanks, James. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. Good to see you, James. I mean, we had to give people something to listen to in this lockdown period, didn't we? (laughs) Yes, thank you. And a few quick thank yous as well. Big thanks to Football Nation Radio for airing this uh, and also for helping out... uh, promoting a few of our uh, questions on Twitter as well. That helped us get some really good uh, reviews. Check out uh, Football Nation Radio app and website. Also, don't forget to check out gingersport.com.au for your youth football sessions. And uh, make sure you check out as well our podcast, iTunes, Wooshka, uh, Spotify. Leave a rating and a review. Help us feel good about ourselves. That's really all I care about. Um, And make sure you're also, yeah, keeping up to date with what's going on. Just stay patient. We're slowly getting to where we need to be. Football will be back before we know it. This has been the Brisbane Football Review. We'll be back in early July, I think, for the conclusion of Season 4. In the meantime, thanks everyone for listening. Big thanks for participating in this Pulse of the Fans forum. We'll be back later. Talk to you then.